You can go ahead and turn with me to Psalm 122. Psalm 122. I'm going to do something a little bit different this morning. This morning, I'm going to share with you about the recent trip I was on with my wife Claire, some others from Longview Point, and some others in a tour group to Israel. Uh, you as a church sent us as an appreciation gift. Many of you had a hand in that. And we are so grateful. Claire and I talk almost daily about how wonderful that trip was, what a privilege it was to go. Uh, and as a way to say thank you, I wanted to take this time, the Sunday between Christmas and New Year's, last Sunday of the year, I want to take this time to just share with you some thoughts and reflections from that trip uh, and just a way to say it was a, a special time uh, in our lives. Um, you know, probably many of you thought if we send him over there, he'll come back a better preacher. Well, I'm sorry to disappoint. I didn't come back a better preacher, but I came back a changed person. And I want to share with you some some thoughts about things God showed me on that trip and showed us on that trip and, uh, and, and give you some, some context to think about uh, God's work in your life. And so uh, I'm trying not to make this like, you know, the relative that sets up the slideshow in the den to show you their, their pictures from their recent trip to the Grand Canyon, you know, picture after picture after picture. I'm not going to make it like that. I have a handful of pictures I'm going to show you. Uh, but really, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to share God's word with you and use this trip as sort of the context and the foundation for some things that I want to say with you and share with you as a church. Uh, my goal is to edify you, to build you up, and ultimately my goal is to glorify uh, our great God. So look there with me, Psalm 122. I'd like to ask you this morning, if you're physically able to please stand with me in honor of the reading of God's word. Notice it says... Right above verse 1, this is a song of ascents of David. Now this section of scripture, this section of the Psalms, are a collection of songs that the children of Israel would sing when they would journey to Jerusalem for a feast, for a festival. And uh, Jerusalem is on a higher elevation than the surrounding area, so you would literally be ascending, walking up toward Jerusalem. And they would sing these pilgrimage songs as they journeyed to that city and even entered that city. Look what it says in Psalm 122, verse 1. I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. Our feet have been standing within your gates, O Jerusalem. Can you, can you see in this verse the excitement of David of standing within the gates of that city? Jerusalem built as a city that is bound firmly together, to which the tribes go up, the tribes of the Lord, as was decreed for Israel, to give thanks to the name of the Lord. There, thrones for judgment were set, the thrones of the house of David. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May they be secure who love you. Peace be within your walls and security within your towers. For my brothers and companions' sake, I will say, peace be within you. For the sake of the house of the Lord our God, I will seek your good. Let's pray together this morning. Father, we pause to express our need for you in this moment. I pray, Lord, that as we look into your word, 
you would use your word applied to our lives by your spirit to transform us. Lord, may you move in such a way that we will leave today saying, Hallelujah, what a Savior. May this time, Lord, edify your people. And may this time glorify your great name because ultimately it's all about you. Have your way in our midst. We ask and pray this in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you. You can be seated. It was an awesome trip, and I, I came away from that trip with some reflections about Israel, about the Holy Land, and I want to just walk you through uh, those reflections today. First of all, and you can follow along with me there in your notes, Israel is a special place. There's just no, no getting around it. When you, when you go and you experience it, you see that it is a special place. Let me show you what the Bible, what God says about this land over in Exodus chapter 3. Exodus chapter 3. Now this is the passage where God uh, appears to Moses at the burning bush to give him some instructions. Uh, God wanted Moses to go to Pharaoh, the most powerful man on the face of the earth at that time who was ruling over the nation of Israel. Israel served as his slaves. And he wanted Moses to say to Pharaoh, let my people go. He was going to use Moses to lead the Hebrew people out of Egyptian bondage and slavery into a land he was going to give them, a promised land, a land he had promised way back to the patriarch Abraham. And notice what it says in Exodus chapter 3, verse 7. God talking to Moses. Then the Lord said, I've surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land. Watch this. A land flowing with milk and honey. And that phrase is used often throughout the Old Testament to describe the promised land. The Holy Land, a land flowing with milk and honey. And so we can see just from that phraseology that God himself uses that this is a special place. And let me give you some reasons that Israel is such a special place. First of all, the great diversity. When you get there, immediately you see there are stark contrast everywhere that you look. Great diversity everywhere that you look. Woodrow Kroll wrote these words about the diversity of the promised land. He writes, Shalom, Salam, hello. In Israel, you hear all three greetings simultaneously. They'll welcome you in Hebrew, Arabic, and English to one of the oldest and at the same time newest nations on earth. The Holy Land given to Abraham and his descendants is one of incredible contrast. Here lie the ruins of the world's ancient civilizations, the Phoenician, Philistine, Hebrew, Nabataean, Roman, and Greek. Yet, amid these ruins rise the skyscrapers of Tel Aviv, Jerusalem, and Haifa. Here, sunbathers frolic in the subtropical heat of Eliot, Eilat and ski the slopes of Mount Hermon in the same season. A land where Hebrew, Arabic, Yiddish, English, French, German, Polish, and Russian are commonly spoken. A land which abounds with artifacts, excavations, and amateur archaeologists. This land that Mark Twain described as forbidding desolation, yet today blossoms like a rose. It is a land of great diversity. Religious diversity, ethnic diversity, um, 
diversity in the landscapes you will see. It is a place of great, great diversity, a special place. But secondly, it's a place of unique topography. Unique topography. Just the uniqueness of the land is just so apparent when you see it, when you walk when you walk in those areas. Unique topography. For example, I want to show you a picture of the Dead Sea. Now, by the way, uh, forgive the amateur nature of these photographs. They are all taken on my iPhone, so uh, they may not be the best quality, but I thought it would be more uh, real than just downloading pictures off the Internet. So once you see the picture of, of the Dead Sea, and this area is just so very unique. The Dead Sea is the lowest place on earth uh, in terms of elevation, and it is a salty sea. It's where the Jordan River uh, empties into and there's so much salt content in the Dead Sea that nothing living can, uh, can exist in those waters. So that's why they call it the Dead Sea. And the salt content is so great that you can't sink in the Dead Sea. As a matter of fact, we had the opportunity to go uh, and put on our bathing suits and go into the Dead Sea and float in the Dead Sea. I'll, I'll spare you that picture. But, but uh, of us actually floating in the Dead Sea. And, and it's funny because I've never been able to float. I always sink in, in water in a pool. I've never been able to float. I've always wanted to, couldn't do it. The Dead Sea, you can't sink. You just, you're just laying there in the water and you are floating in that, in that dense sea. Do we have that picture? Is that picture up there? We have the picture. I think it's the next slide. There it is. There's the Dead Sea. Uh, there, there, that's what it looks It's beautiful to behold. But it's just so unique. There's nowhere like it on earth. This low elevation, this salty, salty sea where no life can exist. Uh, but, it, but it's beautiful to behold. So many biblical events took place around the Dead Sea. And this is just one example of the unique topography. There's so many changes as you travel through that land. So it, it, it's unique in that sense. Also, it's a special place because of the amazing history the amazing history, it is extraordinary to think through uh, how ancient the lands are that you are walking in, the things that you are seeing. Uh, as, a, as a way to compare it, uh, a few years ago, uh, when I was a, more than a few years ago, um, 15 years ago, when I was a youth minister, Claire and I took a group of youth on a mission trip to Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. And I'm a history buff, so I loved going to Freedom Hall and you know the, seeing the Liberty Bell. And I remember thinking, oh, this, this history is so awesome. Well, that history of our nation is about 200 years, it happened about 200 years ago. So, you know, that's not very long when you compare it to Israel. When you're looking at things that happened thousands and thousands and thousands of years ago, I'm talking about ancient History And so the amazing history makes it a, a really special place. And then the beautiful settings. The beautiful settings. It is a beautiful land to behold. I want you to see this picture of the Sea of Galilee. Uh, oh, what an awesome experience it was to be at the Sea of Galilee. So much happened at the Sea of Galilee uh, in the Bible. You know, Jesus fed the 5,000 on the, on the slopes surrounding the Sea of Galilee. He walked on the water of the Sea of Galilee. He spoke to a storm on the Sea of Galilee and told it to, to stop. He cast out a demon on the shores of the Sea of Galilee. Uh, there's so much that happened, uh, biblically speaking, around and on the Sea of Galilee. And it is an amazing, beautiful uh, place. As a matter of fact, I took with me a book by Adrian Rogers on this trip called Believe in Miracles but Trust in Jesus. 
Now, I took the book because he's in the book talking about stories that took place on the Sea of Galilee. So I thought it'd be neat when I'm at the Sea of Galilee to read these different stories, uh, sermons, really, that Adrian Rogers preached about these different stories that happened. And in that book, Adrian Rogers quoted uh, ancient rabbis about the Sea of Galilee. And here's what he said. He said, ancient rabbis say, or said, that God made the world, and then he made the Sea of Galilee for himself. It's just a special place. It's like the perfect setting for Jesus to heal and, and perform miracles and teach and perform much of his public ministry. It's a, a very special place. And that's just one example of, of the, the beautiful settings that we saw. So it is a special place. No way to get around it. When you're there, you, just, you sense that, you feel that, you experience that. Number two, not only is it a special place, it's a studious place. A studious place. And that word's a little clunky, but I needed an S word. Um, so just go with it. It's a studious place. And by that I mean there's much to learn. There's much to learn as you uh, are there in uh, that land. There's much to learn, first of all, from the places. The places. I mean, we got to go to places like Jericho. And think about the significance of Jericho in the Bible. Remember when Joshua led the 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 Israel people across the Jordan River into the Promised Land, traveling from east to west. The first city they came to that they had to conquer was the city of Jericho, where Rahab was, who hid the spies. And, and, and God arranged for Rahab and her family to be saved from destruction because of the scarlet thread out of the window. So it's a well-known story, a famous story. And, and we were there in Jericho. I mean, it's called the oldest city on earth, the, the oldest place we know of uh, that was a city on the earth, or in the earth, and so you, you go to a place like Jericho, and it's just jaw-dropping to, to be there, and so many other events happen in Jericho. Went to Capernaum, where, uh, right on the Sea of Galilee, where Jesus set up his base of operations for his public ministry. We got to see remnants of the synagogue where Jesus Christ would have read scripture and taught. We got to see remnants of the house where Peter lived, where Jesus healed uh, his mother-in-law, uh, Peter's mother-in-law. I mean, you're just right there seeing these 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 archaeological digs, and it's just amazing. Nazareth, where Jesus grew up. Cana, where Jesus turned water into wine. Mount Carmel, where Elijah had the showdown with the prophets of Baal. And I could go on and on and on. Uh, you just see these places, and, 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 and it just helps the places in the Bible come to life. And here's how I described it to somebody. Often in my Bible reading, before this trip, when I would read a passage of scripture and I would see a place name or a person's name, I would kind of just kind of read past it, kind of gloss over it, and not pay a lot of attention to it. It's almost like you had scripture and then kind of below the, the words I paid attention to were the place names. I just, I just kind of glossed over. Have you ever been guilty of reading a passage just glossing over the, the city name or the town or the people? I was guilty of doing that. But now after this trip, it's like those place names, people names have come back to the surface of the text and, and I, I pay special attention to them and think about them and reflect upon them and think, oh, okay, I've been there and kind of picture it in my mind. And so it's really helped me to, to, to see these places and learn more about these places. But also, there's much to learn from the archaeological finds. It's amazing uh, to just see the different uh, archaeological sites, the things that have been discovered that really just make biblical history come to life. For example, uh, we went to Caesarea on the coast of the Mediterranean Sea. And Caesarea was built by Herod. And there was a large amphitheater 
there in Caesarea. And it was the amphitheater where the people would have gathered uh, in Acts chapter 12. And, and before I left for Israel, I preached on Acts chapter 12. And this is a passage where uh, Herod Agrippa uh, comes and sits on his rostrum, his throne amidst all the people in the amphitheater. And he has this speech, and people are amazed by his speech, and he takes the glory from that speech, the glory that belongs to God. And the Bible says at the end of Acts chapter 12 that God struck him dead and he was eaten by worms. So I'm standing in this amphitheater right by the place his throne would have been, right by where Herod was eaten by worms. How cool is that? As a matter of fact, I was going to show you a picture, but the only picture I have is of Claire standing there smiling, and it just didn't fit the worm eating motif. She, she just looked too happy. So I'm going to spare you that picture. Um, but we were right there in Caesarea and, and saw that. I mean, biblical history come to life. It's an archaeological find. It's amazing. And there's so many other things I could share with you. But let me show you this picture. And forgive the fact that I'm in the picture. But I needed to show you this. This is one of the original jars that the Dead Sea Scrolls were found in. Uh, there are four jars uh, remaining uh, in which the Dead Sea Scrolls were found on the, along the, the shores of the Dead Sea. Uh, w- one of the um, jars is in the Vatican. Two are in a special museum in Jerusalem that houses these jars. This fourth jar is in an antiquity dealer's shop in Bethlehem. And the reason he has that jar is because his grandfather was one of the first men to process and deal with the Dead Sea Scrolls when they were discovered in the mid-1900s. So because of that, he got to hang on to one of, the, uh, one of the four jars that the Dead Sea Scrolls were found. This is an amazing archaeological thing. And so you see how proud I am to be standing by it, right? I wanted Claire to get my picture uh, because this is such a significant thing. But what is the significance of the Dead Sea Scrolls? Well, I preached on it a few weeks ago. But let me just sum it up like this. The Dead Sea Scrolls prove that the Old Testament was written before Jesus Christ ever walked upon the face of the earth. When you date them, they date back, copies of the Old Testament dated back before Jesus Christ uh, lived in the first century or came to earth in the first century. So they prove that those prophecies in the Old Testament were prophecies that Jesus truly fulfilled. They're an amazing archaeological find that really uh, stops skeptics in their tracks as they process how significant these Dead Sea Scrolls were. And so I'm standing by the jar, and I think it's awesome uh, how, in, how incredible that is. may not mean much to you, but my inner nerd came out, and I, just, it was, I, I thought it was really cool. And so it's a studious place. There's much to learn uh, as you just go to these different sites and see these different things. But here's the third thing. We're going to shift gears a little bit. Israel is a it's a special place and it's a studious place, but it's a sad place. It's a sad place. Wait, say, wait, why would you say that Israel is a sad place? Well, let me show you this next picture. It's a picture of the Wailing Wall. You've probably heard of the Wailing Wall before. Uh, the Wailing Wall is all that remains of the temple complex built under the reign of Herod, uh, which was the temple that Jesus would have entered and ministered in in the first century. Uh, after Jesus uh, died on the cross and rose from the dead and ascended back to heaven, uh, this temple was destroyed uh, by the Romans, by the Roman Empire. And all that remains of the temple complex is the westernmost retaining wall. And, and, and because it's all that's left, it's a very sacred place 
for the Jewish people. Uh, they, they gathered there to pray. And we had an opportunity to go to the Wailing Wall and experience that. As a matter of fact, we could go up to the wall. They have little cracks in the wall where you can write prayers on pieces of paper and stick them in the cracks. So you can just stand there and uh, pray. And we had the opportunity to go and pray. But when you see how, how fervent these Hasidic Jews are uh, in, their, in their praying, in their ceremony... It's a very, very sad thing because these Hasidic Jews, these Orthodox Jews, are missing it. See, what they're doing at the Welling Wall is they are expressing their longing for the Messiah to come. And the Messiah has already come. His name is Jesus. And they're expressing their longing for the temple to be rebuilt again. A place for them to come and worship. Uh, they, they want to see that temple rebuilt. So they're going through their ceremonies and their prayers. I'm telling you, they are fervent in their prayers, but they're missing it all. You see, as I thought about these Hasidic Jews, these very religious, devout Jews, I thought, you know what? They, um, they're waiting for the Messiah to come. The Messiah's come. His name is Jesus. They want the temple to be rebuilt, but here's the deal. When you know Jesus Christ, your Lord and Savior, he comes to live on the inside of you. You become the temple. They're, they're fervent about the word of God. They have little phylacteries on their head that house the word of God. They have the word of God in their hands. They're constantly trying to memorize and meditate and read scripture out loud as a, as, as a way to say how significant the word of God is to them. Guess what? In Christ, the word of God is written in your heart. And so all of these longings that these Hasidic Jews had and have, all of them are fulfilled in Christ. And they're missing it. And it was so sad to see them miss it. Not only did we see fervent Jews who were far from God because they did not believe in Jesus Christ as their Savior and Lord, we saw many Muslims who were far from God and enemies of the cross. The Temple Mount... The area above this wailing wall where the actual temple was uh, is now under Muslim control. There's been a lot of battles through the, through the centuries between Muslims and Christians. And, and, and the Muslims control the temple mount. So look at the next picture. That building is called the Dome of the Rock. It's a Muslim shrine. Also on the temple mount is a Muslim mosque, Al-Aqsa Mosque. And that... That building used to be a Christian church that was built over where the Holy of Holies would have been. Over the rock, which was the threshing floor of Verona. And they, they built that church as a, play, a way to commemorate that special spot where the Holy of Holies would have been in the temple. Where the Muslims came and, 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 and conquered Jerusalem in this, at, at one, one of their times. They turned that, that Christian church into a Muslim mosque. And now they are in control of the Temple Mount. As a matter of fact, we were able to walk around the Temple Mount. Claire and I got in trouble because we posed for a picture and we were hugging each other. And this Muslim guard came over and said, stop, no, you don't, don't hug. And so I felt like a teenager again uh, for getting in trouble for public display of affection. Um, but they're very serious about uh, maintaining uh, the decorum they think you ought to have and that that spot where the Muslim shrine and the Al-Aqsa Mosque reside. And so you look at that. 
See, all these people, um, Muslim people, worshipers of Allah, far from God, lost and in their sins, headed for an eternity in hell, and they who are enemies of the cross, control the temple mount. And you look at that and you think, God, how long are you going to let this go on? Surely, surely soon you'll come and put an end to all of this. But you see that. The religious fervor of the Hasidic Jews, the religious fervor of the Muslim people, and it is very sad because they are far from God and they need Jesus to save them from their sins. You can't go there and not feel the lostness of that area. As a matter of fact, just looking at uh, in terms of population, 1% of, of Israel would identify themselves as Christian. That, that would, uh, that would uh, entail um, Catholics, um, Greek Orthodox, other denominations. Uh, only a, a small percentage of that would be what we would call evangelical Christian. And so there's very little... A Christian influence in this area that, that, that's preaching Jesus. As a matter of fact, uh, our guide for the tour, um, his name was George. Uh, he was an interesting guy, and, and we were riding behind him on the bus, and Claire began to ask him about his background. And he said that he grew up uh, going to Catholic and Greek Orthodox schools, and Christianity really meant nothing to him. He would sleep through the services, sleep through the chapel, sleep through the mass, and just wasn't engaged at all, just, just going through the motions. But he said when he became a teenager, he met an English, uh, or not an English, an American pastor that came to live. He had a Baptist background, and he was, he was there pastoring in a Nazarene church. And, and George didn't use these exact words, but basically what he was telling us is this pastor began to disciple him and spend time with him. And George talked about how uh, this pastor would, would learn Arabic but it was clumsy and the kids would laugh at him, but they loved him for trying. And he would play basketball with them. And, 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 and the way George told the story, it's when George really became serious about following Christ. When this, when this American pastor came and just lived there for about four years and poured into the kids there and the children there and the families there. And it was a, a major uh, spiritual marker in George's life. But then George told us that church where he pastored is empty, it's vacant. There's a church building there, uh, right by the um, right by one of the gates of Jerusalem. There's a church building there. Uh, there's a house on top of it, six rooms where a family can live. But there's no one there to pastor the church. No one there preaching the gospel amid so much amid so much lostness. And so it's a sad place. But here's what I was reminded of. Our longing, hope, joy, righteousness, and redemption are fulfilled in Christ. It's all fulfilled in Christ. So we need to pray for the people of Israel and for labors for the harvest. Over in Luke chapter 10, verse 2, Jesus said to his disciples, The, the, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. So pray that the Lord of the harvest would thrust out laborers into the harvest. Pray that God would put a pastor in this church building to preach the gospel in Jerusalem. Pray that God would send out more workers to engage the, the Hasidic Jews and the secular Jews and the devout Muslims and the secular Muslims and, and all the folks there that need Jesus. Pray that God would send out more laborers into that harvest field. They need more folks sharing the gospel. But there are some neat things happening. For example, let me show you this next picture. 
I forget his name, and it's not a very good picture because I took it with my iPhone and I was trying to be discreet, so you can't see him very well. But this is our guide at Golgotha in the Garden Tomb. Now, there are two locations uh, there in the area around Jerusalem that people believe uh, that Jesus was crucified and buried and, and risen from the dead. Uh, this, is, this is the second location, or the second one that was discovered. And there's, a, I, there's a, I could take an hour to, to talk to you about the differences of the locations and why people believe this is the location, whatever. We know that Jesus Christ died on the cross and rose from the dead. Amen? This is one of the locations. It very likely could have been the location because uh, they took you to, um, to a site, that uh, a rocky hillside that looks like a skull. And it very likely could have been Golgotha where Jesus Christ was crucified. And then, in very close proximity, just like the Bible says, there was a tomb that was discovered, probably from the first century time period, that very well could have been the tomb uh, that Jesus Christ was buried in, in which he uh, rose from the dead. Uh, another reason they believe this is the spot is because it's a garden area, and the Bible says it was a garden area. You would have needed water to have a garden. There's a big cistern there that would have housed the water. And so there's a lot of reasons they believe this might have been the spot. And it was a beautiful spot to, to reflect upon that rocky uh, uh, outcropping and think that could have been Golgotha where Jesus Christ was crucified. And, uh, and, and to uh, think about this could be the tomb where Jesus Christ was buried and where he was raised from the dead. It was a, a neat thing uh, to be there. But here's the deal. This guy you're looking at, uh, he's from Western Europe. He was from Holland, and he's retired. Matter of fact, he told us he didn't get paid a dime to guide people through the garden tomb area. Uh, he says his pension takes care of his salary. He's retired. But he comes to Jerusalem as a volunteer just to lead groups through this tour. He was with us for about 15 minutes. And I want you to know, this guy flat shared the gospel. He was talking about Jesus Christ being our substitute, and he talked about the, 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 the thief on the cross on the right and the left. One embraced Christ as Savior, one rejected Christ as Savior, and we have to decide if we're going to embrace Christ or reject Christ. I mean, he was preaching the gospel. I was, I was elbowing Claire. This is awesome. This guy is volunteering his time to just come live in Jerusalem, and, and there are, are thousands upon thousands of people that go on this tour every year, and he's there sharing Jesus Christ. I was so encouraged by that. But even in the midst of that, you, you sense the spiritual warfare. When he was there, right there, right to the left, is where Golgotha is. Uh, and he was telling us about the cross and about the crucifixion and all of that. Uh, right, right behind him, there's a Muslim bus stop. It's a very busy place. And on the other side of that, there's a mosque. And while he was sharing with us about Jesus Christ and the cross, we heard the Muslim call to prayer. And it was loud. I mean, real loud. And, and this guy said it was louder than normal. It was spiritual warfare. One guy's preaching Jesus. Another guy is, is calling Muslims to pray to Allah. Spiritual warfare right here in this spot. But I'm so grateful there are guys like that that say, you know what? I want to use my retirement years. And I want to go to Jerusalem. I want to share the, the gospel of Jesus Christ. I was so encouraged by that. And we need to pray that God will send more people like that, that'll leverage their life, whether it be Jerusalem or North America or somewhere in the world, leverage their life, say, hey, I've got time, I've got opportunity, I'm going to go and be a witness for Jesus Christ. And so it's a sad place, a place of great spiritual warfare, great lostness. So when you think about Jerusalem, when you think about Israel, would you pray with me that God would send out, thrust out laborers 
into that harvest. But here's the fourth thing, and, and we'll close with this. Israel is a special place, it's a studious place, it's a sad place. But fourth and last, it's a sacred place. A sacred place. There's great significance. There's no way to get around it. There's great significance in walking where Jesus walked. You know, we were in Caiaphas' house. We know Jesus was there on the night he was betrayed and arrested and tried. We were on the, the, the pavement stones where we know Pilate condemned Christ to crucifixion. We know Jesus was standing on those stones. We saw the pool of Bethesda. Where in John 5, the lame man is trying to get in the pool, but everybody keeps stepping over him. He wants to be healed, but everybody keeps stepping over him to get in the pool before him. Jesus comes along and says, take your mat up, walk. And he was healed. Remember that story? We're right there at the pool of Bethesda. Incredible. Sea of Galilee, Capernaum, Cana. These places where Jesus Christ actually walked. And there is great significance in where Jesus walked. Let me show you one of my highlights, one of my favorite places. The Garden of Gethsemane. We got to go as a group to this garden. We had a, a brief little worship service together. And then our uh, tour leader said, everybody go grab a tree and just have some time with the Lord. So Claire and I went to one of these olive trees. We prayed together. Others went to their all, a different olive tree and prayed together. This is the Garden of Gethsemane. This is where Jesus was. There's no question. It's where it is. It's right there on the Mount of Olives across the Kidron Valley from the Temple Mount. I mean, it's where Jesus was. It is the Garden of Gethsemane. It is where Jesus went on the night before he was crucified and, and, and struggled in prayer with the will of the Father and said, not my will, but yours be done. He knew what was coming, but he obeyed the Father and went to the cross for you and for me. It is a place of great significance. And to be in that place around an olive tree, not the original olive tree, but one of the olive trees in that garden, to be there and to pray and, and know Jesus was there is of great significance. And let me say this. There's great significance in seeing where the drama of redemption unfolded. You see a place like Golgotha, the, the garden tomb, very likely could have been a place. I'm leaning to that is where the place was, but again, that's an entire, entirely different message. Uh, I've done some studying on it this past weekend, and I think, but anyway. Um, but you go to a place like that, and, and you see that rocky outcropping, it looks just like a skull. So you can, you can totally envision in your mind Jesus Christ being crucified right at the, the, the base of that mountain, and and, and then you see the garden tomb, and it's a first century tomb. There's no question about that. Uh, it's just amazing to see where these events unfolded that mean so much to us in this room. If it weren't for the cross, the empty tomb, where would we be? Amen? Where would we be? This is where the drama of redemption unfolded. And I got to see that with my eyes. And Claire and I got to be there together and, and, and with the other folks from Longview Point and, and another, other folks on this group. And it was, it was of great significance. There's great significance in seeing where the drama of redemption unfolded. Let me just take a moment, just right here, just very quickly, to say again, thank you. To, to have the privilege... As your pastor, to, to go and see these things with my own eyes, to be with there with my wife, uh, other folks from Longview Point. This, it, was, it was just a remarkable privilege, and it is one that we don't take for granted. We talk often about how special it was that we were able 
um, to go and to experience that. And so I want to just say again, as we think about the, this, this, this area being a sacred place, I want to say thank you again. It meant so much to me and to, um, to Claire to be able to go. But here's what I want to say to all of us in this room today. Because maybe you're here and you say, okay, Wade, you got to go to the promised land. Good for you. I've, I've never been. Uh, I'll never go. Or I hadn't had an opportunity to go. And that I'll ever go. What about me? Well, listen to me. There's great significance in walking where Jesus walked. There's great significance in seeing where the drama of redemption unfolded. But there is greater significance. Listen, there's greater significance in the fact that Jesus dwells in us. Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 3. Ephesians chapter 3. I want to show you this because this was a recurring thought I had during my time uh, in Israel. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 14. Paul writes, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of His glory, He may grant you to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in your inner being. So that, look at verse 17, Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith, or through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now listen to me. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, this passage is for you. And this passage reminds us that Jesus Christ himself dwells in us. There's a song I love by Andrew Peterson. He he speaks of Jesus walking the halls of our heart. If you're a Christian... Jesus Christ himself is walking the halls of your heart. He's come to live on the inside of you. Yes, there's great significance in seeing where Jesus Christ walked when he was on this earth. Yes, there's significance in seeing where the drama of redemption unfolded. But there is greater significance in knowing that Jesus Christ himself lives in us. And maybe you've never been to the promised land. But you can claim this promise. And you can experience this as a daily reality. Jesus dwells in you. And here's the thought I kept having. This is amazing. There are times when we saw something, and I was just speechless. I didn't know what to say. Sometimes I felt like, you know, hey, preacher, say something. I didn't know what to say. I was just speechless. Incredible. But then I started having this thought. Why am I not equally amazed that Jesus lives in me? Why am I not even more amazed that Jesus walks the halls of my heart? And I get to experience that every day. Whether I'm in Israel or in Hernando, I get to experience the unfailing presence of Christ in my life. And you say, wait, I'd like to experience that. How can I know that Jesus lives in me? How can I know that Jesus walks the halls of my heart? Would you notice what he said in verse 17? Christ, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. When you place your faith in Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, you turn to him because you believe he's your only hope. When you trust his finished work, 
the cross, the empty tomb, as adequate provision for your forgiveness and salvation, when you trust in Christ alone, at that moment of conversion, that moment when you are born again, Jesus himself comes to take up residence in your life. And there's not much more significant than that, right? And so it's through faith in Christ. If you're a believer in Jesus, if you're a follower in Jesus, if you've been saved, if you've been redeemed, if you've been born again, you get the greatest privilege of all. Jesus lives in you. And so maybe you'll get to go one day to the promised land if you've never been. Maybe not. But you get Jesus every day. Amen? As your personal Lord and Savior, walking up and down, the halls of our hearts. What an amazing reality. So here's the point. I want you to walk away with this. Thanks for bearing with me. This is my way of saying thank you to you and just trying to process things I walked away with. But here's here's the point. Israel is an amazing place. We have an amazing Savior. I hope you'll walk away with that. Israel is an amazing place. We have an amazing Savior.